look, I know there's this survivorship bias. We're like, oh, every generation goes through something. And there is a part of me, though, that thinks that something is materially different and extremely wrong with your generation. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something <laughs> really up with this. Yeah. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, we've got, you know, a lot of people are interested in continuing this conversation we had about TikTok and especially porn. Um, mm-hmm. We got some voicemails from our listeners. Uh, let's dive right into the first one. Hey, guys. My name is Dina. I'm calling here from Seattle, Washington. Oh, thank you guys for bringing up the social media and um, also in conjunction with Porn as a threat to public health. Um, I'm a mom of 13 and 15-year-old boys. I think that I want to let you know that I'm a super user of the screen time um, functions on the iPhone as well as through Microsoft PC and Xbox. I know um, the limits of what we can do for our kids. Most parents do not know that you can limit every single aspect of a kid's screen use from what they look at, um, what websites they can and cannot webs- look at, what apps they can and cannot use, how long they can use it, who they can contact um, through texting. I mean, everything you can imagine is completely able to be um, governed by a parent. And that being said, um, I often hear some a lot about parenting, um, this being up to the parent. And I think that, for me, it's very similar to the issue of if we just made alcohol um, and, like, marijuana um, completely accessible to kids of all ages and then asked the parents to try and kind of teach the kids to self-regulate by giving them access to that. What I would just say is that with my extreme efforts of trying to regulate my kids on their, their screen time, it is an absolute exhausting David versus Goliath battle every day. So I love this voicemail. I think what's interesting is the the analogy to alcohol. And I think if you were to interview my mom and the parents in my neighborhood, they would have said back then that trying to keep us away from drugs and alcohol in my neighborhood when we were kids was also exhausting. Interestingly, though, those drugs and alcohol were illegal for those of us as kids to access, but we still accessed it. And I think that's part of the issue here is that there's a -a whack-a-mole situation here, whether it's the government or parents, et cetera. Kids are very crafty. It's really hard to keep a lid on what kids are doing. And I'm of the extreme. I'm I'm extreme on this. So she mentions alcohol and drugs. I actually would uh, legalize alcohol, for example, like a lot of European countries do and have kids have access to it earlier because I actually do think it leads to some more mature behavior. Define kids. Well, I think at very least... 16, 18 kids should be able to access alcohol, not because I think alcohol is good for them, but we have this phenomenon where we say kids can drink at 21. Almost nobody actually Mm. waits until they're 21 when they drink. And often the ones who wait the longest exhibit some of the worst behavior in college because they're like, oh, it's time to party now. So I think actually giving people access to this stuff earlier sometimes could be better if it's in conjunction with strong parenting. Yeah, I think also um, to her points about how much parents can do, I've been amazed just in the past couple of years how much more mindfulness parents have exerted, especially with the pandemic and like more directly engaging with what their kids are doing and what their habits are when school isn't a major portion of their day. Um, I think like our culture is catching up remarkably quickly to this challenge. I think it's still obviously a huge struggle, as she mentions. I'm not sure that 
like the government is going to make it any easier to pry a phone out of a kid's hand. But I think by and large, I'm just I'm really impressed to see that, like, as we kind of talked about in the last episode, my like kind of cohort was like this test case for what does it look like when kids develop with the Internet and with social media in their pockets. And already we're seeing our culture correct by leaps and bounds and activists speaking out and saying like this actually backfired in a very meaningful way. And so it's great to hear it from parents who are actually taking things into their own hands and um, fighting back against the temptation that their kids are being lured into. Yeah. One thing I was struck in thinking back at the episode is that some of the most important conversations are uh, intra-generational, like Billie Eilish talking to people Billie Eilish's mm-hmm. age or fans of hers who are probably a few years younger, sometimes is more effective than parents or educators talking to kids. Yeah. All right. Well, we have another voicemail on this subject. Let's get right into it. Hello, Ricky and Robbie. I had a couple of opinions on the porn segment. Uh, My name's Blair. I'm out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, One thing that I think was lacking is that the lack of sexual education, with the keyword being education, um, is part of the problem with the porn industry. Um, We don't teach our kids at a young enough age what is healthy, what is not healthy, and things like that. I mean, it should start at a young age about anatomy and consent, and then as they get a little older, about what's happening to their bodies, as they get older, with no shame around it, what sex is, the STIs, the pregnancy, the birth control, all of that needs to be discussed openly in an educational manner so that as they get older and they're starting to search out porn, they know what they're actually searching for and looking for. Um, I think it needs to be emphasized in education that porn is not real. Porn is a fantasy. That's not emphasized enough. And I love that you mentioned sex with Emily. She is a huge proponent of comprehensive sex education. Um, I think that there also is a leaning toward more ethically made porn and porn made by women. Um, so you're seeing a little bit of a downturn from the really rough hardcore. And I think that in the porn should be more federally mo- monitored and that when there is a kink or an abusive or a violent nature of the porn, there needs to be a warning on that. I don't know. Just some of my thoughts. I hope you guys listen and take it seriously. Right, thanks. Bye. Well, there's a lot there, I think, on the sex education front. In theory, I'm totally with her. And in certain school districts, I would trust them more than others to handle this. My problem is I've been around enough politicians to know that they will screw this up and they will politicize what's happening in the classrooms. And educators are very fearful that they're going to, you know, back when I w- we were doing sex education in the South, it's very hard because they're you know, competing beliefs on religion and morality, et cetera. You don't know exactly where the line is to draw. And so what winds up coming out the other side is this very vanilla, unhelpful version of sex education that's not going to touch anything even remotely close to like how to, you know, ethically and responsibly engage with with porn. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a school board member who even tried to shut down our school because we read a novel called City of Thieves in the seventh grade that in- included sex. Like that's how like sort of, uh, pearl clutching some of these people could be. And that was actually a Democrat, not even a Republican. So, you know, I, I just don't trust politicians. I trust educators, but not politicians on this stuff. Yeah, I think this is another thing where I want to defer to parents as much as possible. I know that's not a perfect solution and there are a huge swath of um, different 
opinions about what constitutes appropriate sexual education. But I think, you know, localizing that to the family as much as possible is by and large a good thing. But I do think, I think there's a clinical way to discuss porn and porn addiction in terms of measurable impacts that I think is developmentally appropriate. I think people, the right and the left kind of share a little bit of a moral outrage about what's going on with porn with the erectile dysfunction statistics, I don't think that is necessarily, or porn addiction statistics, it's not so salacious. And I think that kind of, that's not really been politicized yet. I could see um, school boards approving that iteration of not talking about the content of porn or getting into um, kind of the nitty gritty of it all, but talking about addiction and measurable effects in the same way that you might talk about alcohol addiction. I do think that there are kind of sanitized studies that can get to that that would be worthwhile to introduce into sexual education curricula. Yeah. My worry about this though is that the incentive for educators is only to talk about it in one way, which is hear all the problems with it. And at a certain point, it becomes like the messaging around the drug war when I was a kid, which is at a certain point, you just stop trusting the adults because there's, you know, I'm not, I, th- I think the debate around porn is more nuanced than drugs. But even then, you're mm-hmm. just like, all right, I know what I'm going to hear from my teacher. They're going to say smoking pot yeah. is bad. They're, there's only, they're, they're going to say, mushrooms are bad, acid is bad. I know what I'm expecting from them. And so the interesting points are coming from your peers in the neighborhood who are like, oh, I had this interesting experience taking LSD and all that. And it's just this messaging problem. I did love that she she talked about the evolution of the industry. And you know, one thing I'll double down on that, that we talked about last time, which is the industry is changing. And when when she and others say porn is not real life, at a certain point, it is evolving so that couples and others are actually letting people in on their lives. And obviously, there's always a distorting effect whenever you're letting people in. But I do think that at a certain point, it could actually start to help people understand more about intimacy and healthy relationships. And that's my hope for where the future lies in this industry. I think I'm maybe a little more suspicious that some of the more positive trends are not a small percentage of porn. I think it's the vast majority that's still being produced and consumed um, probably is more reminiscent of the kind of earlier iterations that I think Billie Eilish and and my friend Chris, who we spoke to, kind of alluded to. Um, but I do think that there are, it's not a monolith, the industry's not a monolith, and there are positive um, kind of subsections of it. But I, I don't really have faith that that's what the majority of people are consuming, personally. All right. Well, enough about porn for today. We've got a packed schedule today. We're going to talk about a controversial Wall Street Journal piece that argues that workers are getting less ambitious. We'll wade into the hot debate surrounding those claims. But first, a series of grisly murders in Idaho has touched off a debate over the use of DNA in policing. The DNA will get you every time. It's how the suspect in the mid-November stabbing deaths of four Idaho students was finally tracked down and arrested. Genealogical DNA was established, leading police to Mr. Koberger. Times have changed. New genetic genealogy allowing police to put DNA samples into consumer databases for a much wider pool. That has the criminal justice system buzzing and privacy advocates nervous. We have to have some kind of protections right now. We have none. So this news is breaking after a long 
investigation into the murder of four students who were stabbed at the University of Idaho, um, 20 and 21 years old, all of them um, really tragic. And for a while, the police were getting a lot of hell for not having a suspect. But it turns out that DNA extracted from the sheath of a knife that was left behind was connected to Brian Koberger via garbage that the police acquired from his father's home. And so there's a question of how they narrowed in on him and honed in on him and whether having his DNA and then comparing it to public databases kind of narrowed the pool of people that could be suspects and whether regular Americans day-to-day who took DNA tests who have no idea who this guy even is who might be his fourth cousin, if their DNA was used by law enforcement to hone in on him. And so this has renewed this whole debate, ongoing debate of DNA and people who did 23andMe and Ancestry.com and then uploaded it, usually uploaded it elsewhere, whether their DNA without their consent and knowledge is being used to solve crimes or potentially to wrongfully commit someone. So I think there's a lot of ethical questions here, um, but this is certainly a new investigative technique that involves Um, DNA genetic genealogy. And for the one in five Americans who've done a DNA test, um, it actually hits closer to home than you might expect. Yeah. So there are two different uses of DNA that are possible in this case. And the reporting is a little muddled right now. But one thing for sure that we know is that old school DNA, the use of DNA technology was used here, which is what you talk about with the sheath Mm -hmm. of the knife and then you know, get we've we watched this on TV shows before, where somebody goes into the interview room and they take the cup that they drink out of and they compare that DNA to what, something found at the crime scene. So in this case, it's one option is they found the sheath of the knife. They had some reason to think that this guy Koberger was involved in the murder. So then they started rifling through his parents' trash, and then they're able to mm-hmm. match the DNA because half of his parents' DNA is going to be his DNA, and so that tells them there's a connection and confirms that connection. That's one possibility. We do know that the sheath of the knife was used and his parents' garbage was used. Mm -hmm. Another possibility, which is not mutually exclusive, is that they find this knife, uh, the sheath of the knife, at the crime scene, and then they run it through one of these databases uh, where people use, use them for consumer purposes, and then they find a match to Brian. That could happen at the same time that they were using the more traditional uses of DNA. It's the latter use that is more novel. The The old use has yeah. been happening for decades now. Uh, I had a chance to speak to Claire Glynn, uh, who is a professor at the University of New Haven and who's developed the first program in the world for what's called forensic genetic genealogy, which is the latter stuff that, that we were talking about, the use of these databases. And she said she's not sure yet whether forensic gen- genetic genealogy was being used in this case, but she was clear to say that this tool of using these public databases or these these commercial databases to track criminals and in some cases exonerate people is is very much on the rise right now across this country. Every single state in the United States is very much aware of this method. They're excited by this method. They're interested in applying this method uh, to their cold case investigations. Uh, I think a lot, a lot of agencies want to be able to apply it. It all comes down to funding, though. That's always our problem with everything in the forensic science world, in the criminal justice world. We need the money um, to be able to apply this. If we had an unlimited pot of money, I think every agency uh, in the country would apply it to their cases straight away. If you have DNA from a crime scene, you can narrow it down 
considerably to the pool of people that you're looking at if you upload them to these databases, which to be clear is not uploading them to like Ancestry.com and 23andMe directly, but uploading them to third-party websites that people will, like once they do a test on 23andMe, they'll upload it to another database to broaden the potential matches if they're looking for relatives, if they're looking for more information. And so consumers will go to websites like GEDmatch, which are um, public, open um, kind of interfaces that you don't DNA test with them. So these private companies are not as culpable as it would seem. 23andMe does not release your DNA um, unless they are absolutely compelled to by law. They've received 11 requests up until last year um, regarding 15 people from law enforcement in the United States, but have granted zero. So these companies are not who is releasing your DNA. It's essentially if you're into your genealogy and you upload your DNA elsewhere to another database, law enforcement can do the same with a suspect's DNA. And that's what they're doing. And I would say I've done genetic genealogy myself to figure out who my dad's biological family was. We found out that he was adopted. It's simple. You, If you have a basic understanding of the percentages that you share with certain relatives. I had no idea who my dad's family was. I positively ID'd them. I sent DNA tests to first cousins and said, hey, could you, I think we're related. Could you do a DNA test to confirm it? And it was correct. So as a high school student, I could pull this off and it's pretty simple for law enforcement to do so. I think the cat is very much out of the bag, and it's super simple. So the the two services that upload their data into public databases for law enforcement are Family Tree DNA, which has about 2 million people in their databases. And according to Professor Glynn, the most recent data that she has is that 97% of the people in that database have consented to their DNA being compared to law enforcement uploads. Uh, and GEDmatch, which is the other one you talked about, is another 2 million people as well. And they have like a more tiered opt-out system where you can yeah. decide whether you want it to be used in violent crimes or being used to identified victims' remains, et cetera. And what's fascinating here is she's very supportive of people uploading their data to these databases uh, because she says it solves crimes. And she went through like how there's a from her reading, a 40% success rate uh, in solving crimes when using this FGG uh, forensic technology, uh, which she says is a very terrific success rate, is better than, um, much better than success rate without using it. And, you know, she she's generally says like, hey, like if there's, this, there's all this talk of slippery slopes and all this kind of stuff, but people are watching too many movies. It, it truly isn't a big brother situation. It, it does um, make me laugh sometimes whenever it's like, law enforcement want access to your genetic code and they want to take your DNA. And I'm like, they don't. Um, they just want to compare your DNA to uh, violent crimes, uh, DNA from violent crimes and also unidentified remains. They can't do anything with your DNA. There's, it's a very limited way this stuff is being used and it's being used with people who are consenting to it being used right now. This technology is not just used to catch criminals, but to exonerate people as well. It's a difficult question for me because I have been in those databases as someone who did um, DNA tests. Um, I withdrew myself from GEDmatch when I found out that like, I it was very unclear how law enforcement was using this. I think there's clearly a test case. I mean, there are 340,000 unsolved murders since 1965. We can crack cold cases with this sort of scenario, like the Golden State Killer 
who killed 13 women in the 70s and 80s out in California was captured and admitted based on DNA tests. And like we can deliver justice to people um, even years down the line, or we can potentially absolve people who were wrongfully arrested, like a 1975 stabbing in Pennsylvania when their DNA did not match. And so I think there's clearly a test case, but the question is, how do we just protect people from the worst case scenario or what do legal ramifications look like? You know, the DOJ was supposed to release guidelines in 2020. They failed to do so. We still don't have those guidelines. And Maryland was the first state to regulate how law enforcement accesses these databases. They need judicial authority, which seems like a pretty reasonable threshold to have to meet. Um, And Montana requires a search warrant of sorts. So there are different methods of kind of figuring out when is it appropriate. I think that there should be some sort of threshold and law enforcement shouldn't just be able to dive in with anyone's DNA willy nilly. But um, I, I think we need to kind of catch up to the technology legally, put some protections in place. I think the search warrant situation makes a good deal of sense and having a judge in there to just put some eyes on whether or not this seems ethical feels smart. But I do think the potential even to absolve people of of crimes that they were wrongfully charged with is um, it's promising to me. So, you know, the people who are skeptical of this. There's this guy named Albert Fox Kahn, who's the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. So this is what he says, like the people who are very skeptical of this. He says, quote, right now DNA is being used to catch old killers and stuff, and that's great, but how long before cops get too carried away with it? What happens if somebody gets killed on your street and police are like, let's just bring in everybody in the neighborhood and swab their DNA? Then we're all guilty to DNA proves our innocence, end quote. So he's basically painting this world of a sort of genetic dragnet and I just think this is straight up hyperbole. This is like a, a extreme slippery slope arguments. So let's talk about that when it comes. It's also a completely baffling use case because there's no world in which they would need to swab everybody on a street to get their DNA. If we're talking about 2 million people uh, in one database and 2 million in another and growing in this country right now, people need to wrap their heads around what that means. That doesn't just mean 4 million people could be identified. That means 4 million people and their relatives could be identified, which is how we caught the Golden State Killer. And you know, this was a cold case for a long, long time. Uh, and they found a distant relative and wound up bringing it back to him. And I think the reason why more people are supportive of using DNA testing than are not supportive of it for these types of purposes is because it's very concrete to people. It's like, yes, let's solve that murder. That is something I can predict. It keeps me safe, et cetera. And these hypotheticals are just not what's happening right now, except on like the born identity and movies, right? This is just not happening in real life. Yeah. I think um, it's really hard to wrap your head around just how much the cat is out of the bag. Like, you have, if you think of however many cousins you have, like exponentially every generation you go back, you have that many more second cousins and third cousins and fourth cousins. And like I've identified family members that were like fourth and fifth cousins that helped me figure out who my family was. And so it's if any number of your relatives are a part of the one of five people who've done a DNA test, like, sorry, you're already exposed and you didn't even consent to it. Just just to be clear about that, not one in five though, it, it's a smaller percentage of that because it's only the two databases, which yeah. is, a, they're, the, they're much smaller percentage, yeah. But theoretically, the uh, law enforcement still could compel 23andMe or a database in an exceptional circumstance to 
open their databases to them. There is the possibility. Um, and in 23andMe's guidelines, you do consent to the potential. They have not granted that yet. There's not been a case that has risen to that um, level of demand from law enforcement, or that hasn't really been necessary because there already are enough people in the public databases. Um, but I think there are some legitimate questions here that are ethical. Like um, in San Francisco, police were caught using DNA from sexual assault victims or um, harvesting that DNA and potentially using them in other cases, um, which actually in this case they did in San Francisco, use it to identify suspects in a completely unrelated property crime. So there's a potential that your DNA is taken and you don't even consent to that. I think that is a huge question. They used blood from newborns in California and New Jersey to um, potentially aid in investigations, which, um, I mean, they weren't taking the blood for that purpose, but that's a very convenient um, mm -hmm. way to just harvest people's DNA without parents knowing, and certainly a newborn can't consent to that. Um, and there was an example in 2011, which I think it's probably a result of the fact that these technologies are very new, but labs mixed up files on two people, um, and an innocent man ended up being charged with rape because his DNA was confused with someone else's. So I think, you know, there is the potential that something like that happens or your DNA just happens to end up somewhere by some weird coincidence. And then here's this kind of like seemingly ironclad way to say you're the person who committed this crime. And then all of a sudden, like that is really hard to get out to out of. And so I can see like there are certainly oversteps and like the way that this seems to be touted as a completely unfalsifiable situation versus if you have like a serial killer whose DNA is showing up at all these different locations. I think I think there are some worst case scenarios. I do think we need some protections of people's rights. And I think the DOJ absolutely should release guidelines as soon as possible on how we can ethically use this tool to solve cold cases. Yeah, I think though in almost every case involving abuse of this kind of stuff, the problem is not the use of DNA in a database. The problem yeah. is some other abuse on top of it, right? So if you're collecting mm -hmm. somebody's DNA for uh, a rape kit or something, there should be a promise that that's all it's being used for. And if that promise yeah, is either not there or is not being honored, that's the problem. Not the fact that in general we use uh, DNA to solve crimes. And, you know, the case of, you know, if somebody's born, et cetera, like, I don't know what the comparison is, for instance, to how we use fingerprinting, for example. And, you know, because like somebody can get your fingerprint, you know, cops do it all the time. Get your fingerprint off that cup. You're in the interview room or mm -hmm. they, you know, they go to your place of work and find your fingerprint somewhere. Or you might have gotten fingerprinted for something totally unrelated, like a, a traffic stop or a DUI or something, and they catch you for that crime. And when I asked Claire Glynn about this, Professor Glynn, she basically was very hardcore on this. And she was like, just don't do the crime. She was like, you know, people have a right not to be murdered. They have a right not to be robbed. And this is what we do in society is we balance the rights of, of people. Sometimes they compete and she's on the side of, Hey, like let's err on the side of solving crimes. And I'm kind of with her. I don't want to, I don't want people who are yeah. tr going in for legitimate policing help trying to solve a rape, for example, to feel ethically compromised. So I think I would definitely protect their rights. But at the same time, by and large, let's use as much data as we possibly can without breaking the law. Yeah, I have to say, I agree. Um, like when you look at 
in criminal cases, just how flawed so many of the things that people end up going to jail on account of really are. Like eyewitness testimony is so unreliable and even like, lie detector police tests. lineups. Yeah. Lie detector tests are junk science police lineups and just like does this person look familiar when your brain is as clouded as like potentially being mugged or something? You're not really gonna remember which iteration of similar looking people is the right one. Like I think this is a much more precise science than a lot of what we've had to rely on in the past. Um I do think though, because it is so unprecedented and it opens up a lot of questions about the fact that the vast majority of people whose DNA have been used in cases, either they'll never find out about it and potentially they did not consent to that. I think there needs to be clearer guidelines, but I do think this is the most promising version of investigation that we basically have at our mm-hmm. at our fingertips. Um, and I think any sort of sense that we could crack down on this or stop this is misguided, in my opinion. Um, I think it's a way to bring justice. It's, it's a way to absolve people. Um, but we just need to have clearer guidelines on whose DNA is being used or harvested and when. But Regardless, you're probably related to someone in a database, so you're already mm-hmm. compromised. Don't I'm fine. Do I don't plan on murdering anybody. But the, 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 at the same time, so you talk about lie detector tests, they're inadmissible. Uh, and um, at the same I had a professor, Dan Kahan, in law school who used to argue that fin- fingerprinting is incredibly unreliable and lie detector tests mm-hmm. are actually more reliable and one's admissible and not, and not the other. But one thing yeah. any of them will agree on is DNA testing is way more reliable than either of those. Totally. Now, DNA testing has to be put together with a larger story. Just because you're at the site of the murder or because your DNA is found at the site of the murder doesn't mean you committed a crime, obviously. And so like, OJ famously was able to muddy this quite a bit back in like, I think one of the most yeah. high profile uses of DNA technology. So it, it is tricky, but this is, you know, here to stay. Notably, one of OJ's lawyers, okay. his DNA expert, Barry Sheck now uh, helps run the Innocence Project where they use DNA technology to exonerate people. So once again, like this is not just about big brother out to get you, but it's also about standing yeah. up to big brother and using this technology to hold Big Brother accountable. Totally. And if a high school version of me can do it, then law enforcement certainly can. Now let's talk about a recent Wall Street Journal article that got flack um, kind of from the left and right for being very pro-employer. But I think it makes some interesting points um, about how the the collective experience of lockdown and work-life balance being completely muddled and the boundaries of working from home and your home is your office and your office is your home and just all the confusion has kind of created this new workers' rights sort of manifesto that I think emerged post-2020 um, about work-life balance and stricter boundaries and saying no. But As an employer, that can sometimes be frustrating, according to this article and according to a lot of employers. Um, CEOs are saying that there's kind of a rise in laziness and the bare minimum and kind of an erosion of the meritocratic sense that if I work hard enough and I don't just shut my laptop at 5 p.m. on the dot, that maybe I'll get to the next level. And there's this kind of fraying of the contract between employer and employee um, that is backed up 
by quite a bit of polling on on workers and on CEOs and HR managers alike. Um, but just to start with some statistics here, 36% of workers admit to having less ambition in the workplace. 40% say work is less important to them now post-pandemic. And the Wall Street Journal kind of puts this worker burnout into three different categories of cynicism, exhaustion, and inefficacy. And I think there's I think there's some truth to both sides of this push and pull and we're having this kind of awkward growing pain moment. But certainly this article got some flack for taking the side of employers, which seems to be like the less popular take. Right. And just to clarify, like what this data means, because you may say, oh, 36 percent are less ambitious. That's compared to 22 percent or more. So. Right. So it's yep. there's obviously a middle ground that are saying and this is admitted. Yeah. That are saying that, which is it just self-reported because uh, you'd imagine more people are saying there's an incentive to say you're more ambitious. Now, I'll put my yeah. cards on the table. I've been managing people and been an employer since I was in my mid 20s. So I think like an employer, I talk to other employers and CEOs and people who run organizations. So I very much have that mindset. And I would say mm-hmm. that this data certainly dovetails with what these managers are saying to me, which is it's harder than ever to motivate people. It's harder than ever to get people uh, to you know want to take on extra responsibilities and and all that. But I would say there's something even deeper going on here. And there's obviously there's productivity data in here that that shows which productivity is an amorphous standard. So I don't want to hang too much on that. But productivity has been going down, mm-hmm. even as technology is becoming more helpful. You'd imagine there's this huge debate in in employment circles around you'd expect technology to help people become more productive, but they're getting less productive. The obvious theory there is that people are distracted <laughs> at work, yeah. uh, which obviously we could we could debate that theory. But my general feeling about this is it's very industry specific, mm-hmm. but it's for me and a lot of people I talk to, it's less about how much time workers are spending on the job and like needing to put in the late hours than how they're using their time. And mm-hmm. people would die for somebody who's like, I'm putting in the eight to five, nine to five, but are really good about using their time and really focused and effective. Like those people are unicorns in this environment. And I would say most of the people I talk to would would kill for that. Never mind the person who works weekends yeah. and nights. There is truth to the fact that it's easier to deliver 100% when you're in an office and then have this discreet leaving point where you're like, okay, I'm out of here and I've done my thing. And in the remote work environment, the incentives are a little different to be as efficient as possible and get your stuff done because you're not just there twiddling your thumbs whenever you're not doing anything essentially. But I think this, I mean, this is very much backed up by data. 45% of HR professionals say it's harder to motivate people. There's a lot more offshoring of labor to like Canada and India and places where people might not be as impacted by this sort of blase attitude about how important work is or what their work-life balance is. And there's a lot more of like the idea that I'm just going to do the bare minimum or or um, act my wage is this TikTok trend right now rather than act your age. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Acting Your Wage 101, where I teach you how to not overextend yourself for a job that doesn't care about you or pay you enough. Sometimes I have to remind myself to act my wage. You've worked too hard today. They only pay you $7.25 an hour. Okay, fellas, act your wage, okay? Let me repeat that. 
Act your fucking wage. Rather than going for that promotion, you're like, oh, well, this is what you're paying me. And so this is how much you're going to get, essentially, which is a very different, notably different attitude that a whole generation is kind of demonstrating more and more. Then you also have the Elon Musk model of work hard and you're out. Yeah, well, let me see before uh-huh. we even get there. Th- that can be a double-edged sword. So I could say, you know, it, it's it's running through my head. I'd be like, I'll just tell people, hey, act your wage. We're paying you a lot. Act like it. So maybe I'll use that mm-hmm. at some point. I like that. We'll turn that language on them. It's almost like uh, what 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 is the thing that that Trump did with the media? Um, fake news. I think act your wage is going to turn into the fake news where people were accusing him of fake news, and then he now has now when you think of fake news, you think of it as like it's uh, it's context of the liberal media being fake news, but it was yeah. originally coined in the opposite direction. But in that sense, though, I think that kind of workers are kind of getting the the benefit of that though like if that does require you then as an employer if you want to play that card to adequately compensate someone so there is that kind of push and pull that i think a little bit of that attitude might be appropriate to advocate in certain circumstances where people are not being adequately compensated for, sure. for their time like uh, but i think th- i think it's definitely double edged but it requires that contract to kind of be in balance between the employer and employee but i think there's also like that that popped up in the TikTok world. I definitely think there's a generational situation happening here that like, I mean, I've only really worked in any full-time, not summer job capacity during a pandemic. And I think coming of professional age in this remote era is definitely a totally different experience. And like the way that you connect with people. I mean, I'm just now um, kind of in the past year or so having my first experiences of what it's like to work in an office, which is mm-hmm. totally different. And like, I, I think there's something to the fact that like, we're going to have to brace for this being a longer term thing because remote work is going to continue or hybrid work is going to continue to be an option for people going forward. It's going to continue to be a demand. People have kind of tasted what it's like on the other side. And I think there's going to be like Gen Z and Gen Alpha and whoever comes after us um, are probably going to pick up some of these attitudes a little bit more. Like 52% of Gen Z say they're against the nine to five and they're much more likely to agree with the statement's work is about getting the job done and less likely to agree that they are going above and beyond. Um, And so, I don't know. I think the long-term prognosis is not great. A lot of employers would just take that, get the job done. I would take, like, you know, a lot of people would just be like, yeah, okay, let's just start there. Let's get the job done because I do think there's a low bar right now. It is obvious, like there's one obvious trend here to keep in mind, which is that a lot of these folks are coming of age at a period of time of the highest employment that we've seen in a very long yeah. time. And so there's a certain privilege yeah. that comes from that where people are able to refuse work, refuse promotions, et cetera. Uh, that's totally different than when I got out of law school, which was in 2008, mm-hmm. right in the middle of a financial crisis. My friends were getting killed. It was the opposite problem, you know, because a lot yeah. of this stuff in this article is about law firms, for example. And law firms are such an interesting test case because they are well compensated. Like a lot of my friends were making $200,000 coming straight out of law school in their early 20s, but they were working nonstop. It was soul-crushing mm-hmm. work, often without warning. You're working a weekend. People got really burnt out during that. And I think these law firms lost a lot of good people because of that. Now, like what you're seeing in this article is the opposite. People are refusing work. I was reading this with my jaw on the floor. I couldn't imagine that based on the culture that I saw back then. Yeah. And I think somewhere between the two is great, right? Like I think 
you you shouldn't be working people seven days a week. I don't care if you're paying them two hundred thousand dollars or not. Like nobody should work seven days a week under soul crushing hours. They're just not. Their seventh day is not going to be that great. Like even mm-hmm. even if you're just totally cold eyed about it, like giving people breaks actually helps improve their work. There's a huge debate in, in the around medical residencies around this, right? And like. How much sleep do people get? How much rest do they get? They, do they become be- better doctors, et cetera? It's pretty obvious they do become better doctors if they get better sleep. So I, I think somewhere yeah. between that and people just be like, ah, you know, like I'm getting paid 200. That 200,000 is now three in a lot of these law firms, by the way. I'm getting paid $300,000 by people who pay a lot of money for a case to get done sometimes under, you know, time constraints imposed by courts and litigation. Those people are going to want excellent work. Somebody's going to get paid for that stuff. When unemployment goes up, yeah, it's going to start getting a little bit more Darwinian, yeah. You know, and some of these people are not going to have jobs if they refuse that work. Definitely, and I think um, like the tech sector would be a great model for that. Like I, I know a lot of people that were totally blindsided by being laid off um, just recently. I think the kind of looming recession um, end of this tight labor market will certainly put the fire under people's asses in a certain sense. I also think the demand for flexibility, though, is here to stay. Um, people tend to value like the remote hybrid option is like a seven to eight percent pay increase equivalent in terms of how valuable that is to them. So I think there are going to be long term um, ramifications. But right now we're at this perfect moment where there's like young, new, demanding employees and also they have the leverage. And so it's been kind of remarkable to see how much workplaces have had to reconfigure their entire vibe to work with their Gen Z employees. I sent you before the show yes, let's um, talk this, about this article from the Washington Post. It was like this interactive quiz thing. It was like, what is your Gen Z employee really saying? And like it asks you this question of like, Oh, you used a you put a period at the end of your Slack message, and then your Gen Z employees like kind of weirded out. What's that about? And it gives you like four options. I did the test, and I got every single one of them right, which is really depressing to me oh, no. because I could read it as a Gen Z person. But like using a period at the end of your Slack message means that you might be angry and cold, or sending the wrong kind of smiley face, according to the Washington Post, might mean something is wrong because Gen Z has different nuances to the different smiley. Emotions emojis and so it's just it's it was very amusing to see one that i did know what the gen z read would be on all of these ridiculous like supposed issues with how managers might speak to their gen z employees but two also that people evidently care enough to do a quiz and try to conform to this new like slack language for gen z Mm. is a little absurd to me i fight really hard and i know a lot of the employers i talk to to be optimistic about your generation I really do. <laughs> it, it's 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 really hard at times. Like obviously, a lot of these stories are building on each other. We talked about quiet quitting over the summer. Uh, we talked about TikTok and what that's doing to kids' brains. We talked about dating apps. We talked about pornography. Look, I know there's this survivorship bias. We're like, oh, every generation goes through something, and and you probably can go back to those stories, each one of them, where I made some version of that argument. Yeah. There is a part of me, though, that thinks that something is materially different and extremely wrong with your generation. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something really up with this. Yes. Like, I have to read the exact language of this Washington Post thing. Um, you assign your Gen Z colleague a task on Slack and end eat the sentence with a period. What's risky about this message? God forbid you properly punctuate. I had, and I, I can't believe that I'm getting them right because I'm like, well, how would my friends react to this? And some, some of them, honestly, like 
like sometimes I've seen a, a fishy punctuation mark and I've been like, is this person mad at me? And then I realize like, that's crazy. Like it's, a, right. it's almost like none of a, no one in my generation texts their parents because if I were, if one of my friends were to start to text, like one of my parents does, I would be like, are you on something? Are, are you okay? Like we know older people interact differently with, like they don't speak our little meme emoji language. And I'm not sure why people are like demanding or the Washington Post thinks it's appropriate to be like, yeah, like conform to that. Let Gen Z decide what Slack messages look like. I would not advise that as an employer. I have a buddy who is a very successful political consultant. He says his dream in life is to start a firm called NDR Consulting. And the NDR stands for No Direct Reports. And he just wants to have no, he's been worn out by the Gen Z phenomenon. And he's mm. just like, I don't want an assistant. I don't want associates. I don't want anything. He's like, I don't even want a housekeeper. He's like, I'm just going to take care of everything myself in my life. So I actually think uh -huh. he may do it. <laughs> uh, but okay, there's, there's a deep issue like sociological phenomenon happening here. Derek Thompson has written about this. Cal Newport has talked about this. This sense that uh, there's been an evolution where your job has become your identity and it was not always true. And mm -hmm. there were all these predictions that that would change, but it seems like it, it only became more pronounced over most of my lifetime. And this may be the sort of revolt of people against that saying, hey, like yeah. we've gone too far. Too much of our lives and our identity is wrapped up in what our job is, and we want to find fulfillment outside of the workplace, and that is not specific to Gen Z. Like if you l listen to yeah. any self help podcast or you know the Tim Ferriss type stuff or whatever, remember Tim Ferriss is he, he, you know he's kind of a millennial hero to a lot of people. His his seminal book was the Four Hour Work Week, mm -hmm. right? That was not a Gen Z book. That was a millennial book. Yeah, and Ge millennial and Gen X. So this is yeah. I would say that this this reluctance to embrace your job is everything is not specific to Gen Z. So I want to be fair to Gen Z. Yeah, no, it's definitely true. And I think it's a backlash against this um, kind of mantra that was really bashed over people's heads of like, do what you love and do the job that you're passionate about. And that's just not a reality for a lot of people. That's just not feasible. And like, there's just truth to that. Like, there are a lot of aspiring musicians and actors and things. And, like, there's really tough industries that people get spit out of. And, like, following your dreams is sometimes a cliche. And I, I think that our, we're reacting to that. But I also would say, like, for people who look at my generation and they're like, what's going on? And why are they so lazy and unmotivated and blah, blah, blah? Like, think about when you were 18 or 19 or 20 or, like, a young first couple jobs you probably had a job that you absolutely hated or that wasn't the thing or was the thing that you were testing out and dabbling in and then ended up going down a totally different route. And maybe you're now passionate about your work, but imagine if you were doing that in a pandemic and doing remote work and you'd never experienced an office and you weren't actually exploring and like that shitty job that you're thinking of in the back of your head became your whole life and was bleeding into your household and you're living in a teeny tiny apartment. Like there. Gen Z didn't have the same opportunity to explore in like the regular workplace and to figure out what works for them and what doesn't. And having that lack of experience colliding with the experience of going through a pandemic and um, work-life balance getting really thrown off and boundaries getting thrown off, I think for some people really did measurably impact their their motivation. And so I think there's a way to steel man a little bit of the Gen Z vibe and to say, mm -hmm. maybe if we 
Maybe the pendulum swung a little too far and we're a little too lax about work right now, but returning some work-life balance is probably a net positive for our society. Well, this has been a story for a long time in America. You know, if you read the history books, people are very fond of talking about how the generation that came of age during the Great Depression was famously frugal. Uh, throughout that period mm-hmm. of time. And each generation yeah. is defined. Obviously, Vietnam generation, the countercultural forces for Vietnam are, are still present till today. And mm-hmm. I think when we compare our generations, they're the exact opposite in many ways. Like your generation is kind of coming of age in this abundance, high employment, but other just massive challenges around the pandemic and isolation and the use of technology and attention and all that. Whereas my generation was two major financial crises, one when we were leaving high school and one we were leaving college and professional school mm-hmm. at the same time that there were these like international crises like 9-11 and the Iraq war. And those, you know, the defining, these defining moments are so central to the identity of a generation. And I think what's going to be fascinating yep. for Gen Z is that the story is just being told, right? So it's, you guys are still pretty mm-hmm. early in your professional careers. So if high employment turns into high unemployment, then maybe your generation will be like yeah. mine, which is we are par- we're paranoid. We're always like, hey, we, we're always thinking we're going to lose our jobs because we had so many friends who've lost their jobs. Many, many of my friends have lost multiple jobs and multiple careers because of various financial crises. They've lost, you know, have seen their parents lose their savings, seen 401ks get depleted, you know, see people get eat up by the, the housing crisis. And so that's like so baked into our psyche. So I'm wondering that if this turns for your generation, will we start to resemble each other more? That, you know, maybe that would be a good thing. Yeah, I think the bubble is going to pop in a lot of ways um, for Gen Z. And a, a lot of, I mean, I've struggled with this myself, feeling like the world and like what's going on is not really lining up with the economy and the amount mm-hmm. of kind of terrible things happening in our society were just completely inverted during the pandemic in terms of what it meant to have a job and like things didn't really seem to correlate and the job market's actually really great even though the broader world is um really struggling and so I think I think we're going to kind of yeah I think I think the cold water is going to be thrown on a lot of the luxuries that we've experienced as young people and as young workers Mm -hmm. um I would not be surprised if the long-term outcome of the pandemic it doesn't build a little more character for us I think that that will probably be the case um in some ways economically and as a worker the worst is probably yet to come so maybe these statistics will change long term (laughs) Well, on that bright note, uh, we'll leave this segment. So cheery. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, um, I'm going to go back to my nine to five efficiently, Ricky, but uh, I want to thank our listeners for listening to this and please keep sending in those voicemails. Ricky, what's our voicemail number? 321-200-0570. All committed right. to memory. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Please send it, keep sending the voicemails. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Those positive reviews really help us. And we'll be right back here, same time and place on Tuesday. Thank you very much. Hope you have a good, long weekend. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. <laughs>